Well, as the children are going to be taught the Word of God, turn with me to 1 Timothy 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. While you're finding that text, let me ask one question. What is the point of the Christian life? What is the point of the Christian life? What's the driving motivation that's behind all that entails what it means to live in Christ as a redeemed believer? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us the point of the Christian life. Do all to the glory of God. That's the point. Do all to the glory of God. But for many believers and certainly countless churches, particularly in American evangelicalism, this is a new or an unknown concept. Today's American evangelical primarily uses God, uses some version of the gospel to shift the focus to yourself, to give you a better life, to give you a quality of life, to make your life better. I think this is one of the reasons why it's so easy in the typical church to fly under the radar as an unbeliever. To not believe the gospel, to not believe that Christ died to save you from your sins, to pay the penalty rightly owed to God for your transgression, that that God demands that you repent, that you turn from your sin by changing your mind about your sin By making sin your enemy and turning to God for mercy and grace. It's possible to fly under the radar because the gospel is light and the purpose of the Christian life is presented as making life, my life better instead of giving God glory. Now the problem with this is that this is very attractive to the unbeliever. But by definition, the unbeliever cannot glorify God. Because he's in a state of rebellion against God. He cannot give God glory. And so the emphasis in the current typical American church is more often than not to improve life through instructions about how to live and slowly maybe move towards some version of the gospel but that doesn't really happen at any meaningful level. The focus is on creating a a glorious church experience for a lot of customers Instead of openly and honestly have the Word of God do its work. And what is the work of God through the Word that is to glorify God in our lives? The work of the Word is sanctification. Sanctification. The word sanctification is an English translation of a Greek word which speaks of holiness, of being set apart, of being purified, of being made different of being made more and more like God. Now, if you've been at Grace for any amount of time, you've heard us speak about this. But just for quick review, we understand the doctrine of sanctification to have three aspects to it. We would understand positional sanctification, the position that the believer in Christ has as being justified before God, one who is redeemed. This position is irrevocable. It is permanent. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 The Apostle Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's positional. It happened one time in the past, and it's permanent. We also understand the aspect of ultimate or perfect sanctification. Perfect or ultimate sanctification is when positional sanctification becomes reality, that you're actually perfected. You're actually made like Christ. When does that happen? 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's future. Your perfect or your ultimate sanctification happens either when Christ returns or at your death. What happens between positional and ultimate? Positional and perfect. What happens in between where we live our lives? Well, that's the third aspect. In between those two, we would call this progressive sanctification. And it's easy to remember, it is your progress in Christ-likeness, in being like Christ. Hebrews 10.14 The writer of Hebrews says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Progressive sanctification. Now I say this to kind of introduce our 
topic for this morning. We're continuing in our quest as a church together to be pleasing to the Lord. And so we've begun going through 1 Timothy chapters 4, 5, and 6 in what we're calling Well Done, Good, and Faithful Church. And we are doing this in preparation for our move to the White Lane building. We want to be as faithful as we absolutely can be. And we've been identifying each week what a faithful church does. So far, we've seen that a faithful church is striving for excellence. They are understanding the gospel. They're leading by example. They're focusing the leadership. And this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the fact that a faithful church is sanctifying the individuals. Sanctifying the individuals. Yesterday, we did our seminar on biblical counseling, and that's what biblical counseling is all about, is about sanctification. And I find it interesting that the Lord has chosen this entire weekend to be about sanctification. That wasn't a plan. It just happened that way. The biblical counseling employs the spiritual power of the Word of God to change, to sanctify. In opposition to this, secular psychology and secular counseling relies on things like self-reflection and behavior modification, and the latest fads and trends, and self-motivation, and self-actualization, and an an endless plethora of approaches to change. You go to a psychologist's office, and it's, it's very impressive that he has shelves and shelves of books that all disagree with each other. But the fact is, is that secular psychology and counseling is powerless to change anything. At the secular level, about the best they can do is to say you're doing something that doesn't, doesn't work. And that's true. But that whole system is antithetical to the truth of Scripture. Only the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, can change your heart. And it's only through heart change that actions change. Only the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, conforms us to the likeness of Christ in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our responses, in our priorities, in the very words that we speak. We're not here in the church to do minor renovation to your lives. We're not here to do a little alteration to your lives. We're not here to do a little modification to your lives. We're here to do transformation. That's what the Word of God does. It transforms to live out the spiritual reality of our salvation, to live out 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I cannot overemphasize The radical nature of that transformation. New creation. And so we live that out. Now today we're just considering two verses. And that is there in uh, in 1 Timothy uh, 5. I find myself in the wrong book of the Bible. I got very confused for just a moment. (laughs) 1 Timothy 5 verses 1 and 2. It was a great passage had we been in Ephesians, but we're not there today. We're just doing two verses, and they're, they're simple to understand. And so what we're going to do is expand the boundaries beyond them. What I'd like to do this morning is present to you three pieces of evidence to lead to one conclusion. Three pieces of evidence to lead to one conclusion. I'm going to give you the conclusion right now. The conclusion is that, and I'll repeat this for you, a genuine believer in Christ is committed to sanctification to the glory of God. Let me repeat that a couple times. A genuine believer in Christ is committed to sanctification to the glory of God. A genuine believer in Christ is committed to sanctification. Why? To the glory of God. Now I want to prove this to you with three evidences and we'll come back to that conclusion in a little bit. And we will be in 1 Timothy 5. It'll be a while before we get there. The first piece of evidence we'll call the New Testament's view of sanctification. The New Testament's view of sanctification. Did did the New Testament address this at any level? Well, let's start with some various speakers, if we want to call them that, in the New Testament. What did Jesus say? Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This has evangelistic implications give glory to god is a new testament phrase often used to indicate faith in christ jesus said in mark eight thirty four, if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me salvation in christ isn't a one-time denial of self it's a lifetime denial of self jesus said in luke six forty five. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We just said that. What is it that causes what comes out of your mouth? It's your heart. Jesus made a very clear black and white distinction about the true believer. He said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my, what? Commandments. It's very simple. Jesus prayed for us in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus called most of them to repentance, to confront the evil among them. Just as an example, to the church at Thyatira, he rebuked them. He said in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So Jesus clearly teaches sanctification. How about the Apostle Paul? In Acts chapter 20, Paul exhorted the elders of the church of Ephesus to pay careful attention to themselves, and he declared that he had taught to them the whole counsel of God. He left nothing out. He didn't shrink back on anything in Scripture. He didn't get to a passage in Scripture and go, oh, that's not politically correct. Oh, that's tender. We better skip over that. He taught it all. In response to the glorious gospel, Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans 12, 1 and 2, very familiar to us, He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This word, holy and acceptable to God, is the same root word for sanctified. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul declares that when the church has a person who claims to be a believer, but is unrepentant, of things like sexual immorality and greed, reviling, meaning abuse, uh, drunkenness, swindling. Paul says, purge the evil person from among you, that the church is to value sanctification. The church is to value purity. Why is that? Because Christ's true church is being sanctified, not wallowing in former sins. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, the Apostle Paul, speaking of suffering for the gospel, he says, Quote, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's an inner renewal, an inner strengthening. To the churches of Galatia, Paul declared in Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he gives the fruit of the Spirit by which we do that. After having given a theological masterpiece on the gospel in Ephesians 1-3, through Paul gives us what should be the result of the gospel in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another with one another in love. This is sanctification. This is growth. This is maturity. Paul gives a similar declaration to the Philippian church in Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That our life matches the gospel. In fact, in Colossians, Paul gives an expansive version of this declaration in Colossians 1, 9 and 10. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you hear the crescendo? Micah. Paul exhorted them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22, these little bullet points. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, meaning the Word of God, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 
In the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul says in, in these very lofty terms what his prayer for them is. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Did you catch that? What's the purpose of the Christian life? To glorify God. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. It's a pursuit. Very similarly, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call in the name of the Lord. Paul reminds Titus, that the true believer is longing for purity and righteousness while the fraud is not. Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Did you catch that? Somebody says, I'm a Christian, but their life says otherwise. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit. To the church leader, Philemon, one of the leaders in the church of Colossae, Paul paid him a great compliment. He told him that he is, quote, confident of your obedience. Confident of his obedience. Paul knows that Philemon is a mature believer on his way to sanctification, and he's an obedient believer. That's just Jesus and Paul. How about the writer of Hebrews? Will he clearly assert the necessity of the believer in Christ being sanctified, growing in Christ's likeness? The writer of Hebrews asserts that the Lord disciplines and trains his true children, that our earthly fathers were a model or an example of the true training by, our, by God our Father. But listen to the reason. Hebrews 12, verse 9, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the God of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, here's the reason for church or for discipline of the believer. But later <clears throat> it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Holiness. How about James, the half-brother of Jesus? What would he say about it? Well, the book of James is an entire book on sanctification. It's all about becoming like Christ. James tells us even trials are to mature our faith. James 1, beginning in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its perfect effect, its full effect, rather, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Did you catch this? Instead of praying for your trial to go away, pray for your trial to make you mature. That's what James says. James tells us not to be angered when the word of God is presented to you and when it demands obedience and demands change. Instead, he says in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James calls us not just to obedient actions, but obedient and humble hearts. Because if you don't, he says in James 3, 13 and 14, you're being false to the truth. You're being a liar. How about Peter? Peter tells us that our goal is to be holy. It's the same root word as sanctified. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, what? For I am holy. Peter tells us that the Word of God is the means by which we grow up spiritually. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, that we're to be increasing in our obedience. And he gives us this crescendo, this increase of these qualities which characterize this growth. Listen to this, this crescendo here. Beginning in 2 Peter 1 verse 5, for this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, surely Peter's the last one in the New Testament to talk about this. How about John? 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, meaning in Christ, ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. 2 John verses 5 and 6, and now I ask you that we love one another, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments, meaning the new covenant commandments of the New Testament. How about 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Not just believing it, but walking in it, living it, doing it. How about Jude, the half-brother of Jesus? Jude 20 tells us to build ourselves up, quote, in your most holy, same root word as sanctified, your most holy faith. In fact, he says, hate even the garment stained by sin. Despise your sin, hate it, get rid of it. Every single New Testament writer or speaker, and as you have figured out by now, every single New Testament book calls the believer in Christ to a growing, maturing, set-apart, holy, sanctified life. In fact, it's the very holiness of God which is foundational to our holiness. A.W. Tozer wrote this, He said, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of something or someone very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. That's the foundation for our holiness. First piece of evidence, the New Testament's view of sanctification. It's overwhelming, isn't it? So second piece of evidence, the duty of the shepherd in sanctification. The duty of the shepherd in sanctification That brings us now to our central text this morning. Paul has sent Timothy, as you recall, to realign the church at Ephesus. They'd been so harmed by false teaching within the church, they'd gotten off track. They were talking about myths and genealogies and and all kinds of speculations, and they'd gotten off track from actually making people Christ-like. And so Timothy is there to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, 2 as the primary means of sanctifying the body of Christ, of seeing them transformed and changed. And Paul gives guidance to Timothy about how he is to do this. And this brings us to our text, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Let me just make a few observations. First of all, the word encourage here in verse 1, this has a broad definition. It can be as as soft as just coming alongside and putting your arm around someone. It can be as difficult and confrontational as coming alongside and putting your arm around someone's head and going, you're going to go this way. But he says, don't rebuke an older man. In, in, in harshness, but come alongside, steer him. Just a few observations. Timothy is instructed to be respectful of age. Don't be harsh to the older men. But Timothy's instruction is also to be pure and dignified. He's not to place himself in a compromising position with young women. He treats them as sisters in the Lord. And here's the main thing I want you to notice. Timothy is to apply the word of God, which is the basic meaning of the word encourage, to apply the word of God to all the saints in the various walks of life, to everyone. The clear implication is that each of these groups has unique ways that they're being sanctified, depending on their, their place in life, unique roles, unique places even in the body of Christ. 
Paul's admonition to do not rebuke, it doesn't mean that Timothy isn't confronting sin. He's already been told to do exactly that in chapter 1. What it means is rather than just merely preaching what not to do, what habits you ought to break, he is to preach what you are to do, how you're to obey. We talked about this yesterday. You don't just break bad habits, you replace them with godly ones. And of course, the means by which this happens is the preached word. The idea of sanctification and holiness, by the way, is even proof for the inspiration, the God-breathed nature of the scriptures. If somebody says, well, somebody, some men just made up the Bible, they made up this God. Let me ask you a question. Would any sinful human invent a God who hates the sin that we love so much? So what is the shepherd to do? What was Timothy to do concerning the sanctification of the church? I'd like to just give you five duties of the shepherd in sanctification. There's five duties of the shepherd in sanctification. First, and this is at the heart level, this is, I'm preaching right to myself, to all of our shepherds. He is to desire the sanctification of the church. This is so important. He is to desire the sanctification of the church. Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 4.19, that he sees the members of the church like his children. And he has one burning desire for them. He addresses them. He says, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He likens this to a painful process like like childbirth, that it's all-consuming, all-encompassing. When a woman is in labor, she's not checking email. There is only one thing that's happening, and Paul says, I'm all consumed with this. This is so important. The shepherds of the church are the intermediary agents to create duplicates of Christ. If your shepherds don't care about your sanctification, then you won't be sanctified. And you should go somewhere else where you will be. And there's, of course, a delicate balance here. It's one that we try to be well aware of. On the one hand, expectations can be too high that life on this earth is supposed to be exactly like life in heaven. This leads to legalism. It leads to the error of perfectionism, which just saps the hope out of everybody because you feel like you can't do anything right. But on the other hand, expectations can be too low. That heaven is just this distant, foggy notion and that sin is simply going to dominate us completely until heaven, and we're just supposed to hold hands through our sin all the way there. But if you have a correct balance, the core desire is a progression of ever-increasing Christ-likeness. Growth in the Lord. Not perfectionism, and not just giving in to sinful fleshly desires. The shepherd is to desire the sanctification of the church. Second duty of the shepherd, he is to pursue his own sanctification. He is to pursue his own sanctification. Paul himself was transparent about his own journey toward Christ's likeness. He said in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's personal holiness was motivated by a desire to lead a life worth imitating as a shepherd. In fact, he makes this connection even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul says that he disciplines himself, quote, quote, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The shepherd should desire his own sanctification. There's a third duty of the shepherds. He or they, he is to preach for change. He is to preach for change. Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw the holiness of God and what was his response? It was to preach. Again, Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is only through the word of God proclaimed that you will be sanctified. It will become more like Christ. Our key verse in all the New Testament about the Bible, 2 Timothy three sixteen. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. By the way, if you want to remember that, teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness, the initials basically spell tractor. That the Word of God is meant to just run right over you and plow the ground of your heart and soften your heart. Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century American pastor, was right in the middle of the great awakening of the mid-18th century in America. This was a time of intense revival and the lost being saved by the countless thousands. And he made an observation about preaching in response to his critics. His critics said that preaching that's too long, too theological, too deep, can't possibly be remembered by the hearers afterwards. In other words, the assumption is is that the preacher should preach something to you in little tiny nuggets that you can walk out and remember. But Edwards countered this. He said, quote, The main benefit that is obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind in the time of it, and not by the effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. In other words, Preaching is not just about what you remember later. Preaching is about awakening sleepy souls. It's about shaking people out of the comfort of their own sin. It's a jolt to spiritual lethargy. This is why I don't preach like this and just sit here like this, because this is truth. This is the most important thing of your whole week, is to hear the Word of God. And for some of you, it might be the last opportunity I have. And so I'm going to give it all I've got. Preaching is meant to bring us face to face with the Word of God and face to face with the God of the Word. Or as Steve Lawson famously likes to say, preaching is meant to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Preaching is to admonish, is to shape the converted souls and to warn and to plead with the unconverted souls. Let me put it this way. Preaching that does not sanctify is not real preaching. It's not. I've heard all the jokes about church members getting mad at what the preacher preaches. I, I hate to break this to you, but for me, how you feel about the preached word doesn't even enter into the equation. Doesn't enter into it at all. I know the reality. If enough of you don't want to be sanctified, then you'll stop giving until the church can't afford her pastors anymore. The funny thing is, though, the more we preach sanctification, the more confrontational I am toward your sin, the more you seem to give. Because in your soul as a believer, you know you need the preached word to be a cleansing and purifying time to you. Yes, including convicting you of sin. Yes, sending you sometimes crawling out that door going, I I can't believe what he just nailed in my own heart. In today's message, I am using precisely 97 other Bible verses to prove my argument. My singular goal as a preacher is to flood you, to overwhelm you, to inundate you with the truth of Scripture so that your hearts and minds and actions are conformed to Christ and that you become more like Him. Like Paul prayed for the Galatians, that until Christ is formed in you. And listen, this is a holy, holy, holy God of whom we speak. The 15-minute long stories about my grandmother's dog will not make you more like Christ. Instead, we're to plunge into the deep waters of Scripture and let them cleanse and and cool and make you holy. There's a fourth duty of the shepherd. He is to pray for the sanctification of the church. He is to pray for the sanctification of the church. This was Paul's prayer for the Philippian church in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This was Paul's prayer for the, for the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. 
In Acts chapter 6, the apostles said their primary duty was to the ministry of the word and of prayer. There's almost no evidence in the New Testament that a pastor is to be an administrator, a tactician, or a budget expert. But there's plenty of evidence that the shepherds of Christ's church are to be in prayer for the sanctification of God's sheep. One of the richest things about gathering with our elders is that we pray for you. We pray for you in general, and sometimes we pray for you by name. And if you're really, truly running from sanctification, we pray for you by name loudly. Charles Spurgeon, an absolute genius, 19th century London preacher, he, he believed that at one time he could keep eight different thoughts in his mind while he was preaching. I, I can't do that. There are two thoughts I can keep in my mind, though. And this is one of the joys of preaching. The first thought I can keep in my mind is what I'm doing and what text I'm preaching. The other thought I can keep in my mind is I pray for you as I preach. I, I look at you and I see your precious faces and, and in my heart I just say, let the next sentence strike home. Let the next verse strike its target. At the end of each Lord's Day, my habit has been, and I've learned this from great men, I pray that the word of God that you've heard has been implanted deeply at a life change level for you. Let me put it this way. The preached word is a guided missile. And I hit the button on Sunday morning and it's aimed at your sin. And then our prayers at the end of the day, that's the laser guidance system that locks it onto your heart and bam, it hits its target. There's a fifth duty The shepherd is to foster a sanctifying corporate worship time. To foster a sanctifying corporate worship time. In American evangelicalism, the pervasive disease of the seeker-sensitive heresy has placed a premium on concepts like this. Informal, loose, casual, nonchalant, laid back. When it comes to our gathering together, we're just here to chill with Jesus. Where did we get that? There is nothing in the New Testament or the Old Testament that indicates this. Bring your specialty coffee beverage in. Leave the paper Bibles at home. Uh, Engage your emotions hypnotically when the music starts and who cares about the content or the truth. This is supposed to be centered around the idea of making people comfortable in worship. I would defy you to find one verse in the Bible that speaks of being a comfortable worshiper. Quite the contrary. Worship and discomfort go hand in hand. Our worship gathering is when we're reminded of the holiness and the might of God, the grace and the kindness of the cross of Christ, and the fact that because God is holy, we are to be holy as well. How we have lost a sense of fear of God. Our corporate worship time is to be life-changing. It is to be truth-telling. It is to be heart-shaping. There is to be order and not confusion. There is to be the regular observance of the Lord's table, which is a time of somber reflection on the death of Christ. There is to be music which elevates the holiness and the majesty of God. There is to be exertion and effort in the preached word. There is to be exertion and effort in receiving the preached word. You are not passive. You are here to engage your mind and to hear and to listen. The shepherd of the church is the worship leader. The one who sets the tone and the focus. And, and listen, our goal is not to send you home inspired. It is not to send you home with some felt need hap, uh, met. To send you home with some emotion that you might have felt. Those may all happen. But our goal is to send you home more like Christ. Because you have fearfully and humbly encountered the living God together. So what are the duties of the shepherd? What Paul told Timothy to do? He is to desire the sanctification of the church. He is to pursue his own sanctification. He is to preach for change. He is to pray for the sanctification of the church. And he is to foster a sanctifying corporate worship time. But is the preacher, is the shepherd to simply make lofty calls for holiness in broad generalities? No. Paul's general instruction here in 1 Timothy 5 to Timothy about older men, older women, younger men, younger women, it has specifics attached to it. In fact, this is a very unique little passage. These two verses are interesting because right here, 
close by in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, there is what amounts to a lengthy commentary about 1st Timothy 5, 1 and 2. That is in Titus chapter 2. If you would turn there with me to Titus chapter 2, and we won't take long. I'm just going to kind of fly through this because this brings us to our third piece of evidence about sanctification. The first piece of evidence, the New Testament's view of sanctification. The second piece of evidence, the duty of the shepherd in sanctification. And the third piece of evidence we'll call an expanded commentary on sanctification. An expanded commentary on sanctification. Titus chapter 2 is basically a long explanation of the particulars of 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. It's one thing to preach, help the older men and older women and younger men and younger women spiritually. It's quite another to give specifics from the Word of God that demands we go counterculture, that demands we ignore the input of the world. And that is precisely what Paul gives to Titus for his ministry on the island of Crete. In Titus 2, Paul addresses the same four groups, only with great details. First, he addresses the sanctification of older men. Titus 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach with accords with, means goes along with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So what are older men to be like? Sober-minded. It means temperate, steady. Don't act like a boy anymore. They're to be dignified. This means to show reverence, to be worthy of respect, or, or put it this way, to be an older man, to be dignified, is to be somebody that a younger man can emulate, can imitate. To be self-controlled, it means to be prudent, that you don't make rash decisions. To be sound in faith, there's a, a solidity of doctrinal understanding. They're to be sound in love. They can be counted on as those who will sacrificially love others. The older men in the church, you should be able to go to any one of them with a need and see the compassion on their faces because they love. And sound in steadfastness. They're devoted. They're trustworthy as followers of Christ. The second group he addresses are the older women. Titus 2 verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. They are to be reverent in behavior. This means stop acting girlish. Stop acting immature. Grow up. Stop the drama. Stop the junior high junk. They are to be not slanderers. I've heard numbers of sermons on slander and it's, it's interesting to me that pastors tend to joke about this. This is horrible. This is murder with your words. But the older women, long ago, they gave up the immature habit of gossiping and of spreading stories and of saying things that weren't theirs to say. They gave it up. They're not slaves to much wine. They aren't hedonistic. They're not just addicted to their own pleasure. Paul tells Titus to tell the older women, stop pursuing your own pleasure. There's more important things. They're to teach what is good. They have a concern for, for pouring into the lives of others. And who are they to teach? Train the younger women. This is the idea of coming alongside one-on-one, giving instruction and help in what a young Christian woman to do to follow Christ is to do. And, and speaking of which, the third group he addresses, the younger women. These are defined as women with still children in the home. Titus 2 verse 4, again, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What are the young women to do? To love their husbands. This is not speaking of an emotional love. This is speaking of a love that, that cares for them, literally, to be the lover of your husband. They are to love their children. Again, this isn't just an emotional love, but it's a love that's doing the caring. And by the way, not subcontracting out the care of your children to others. It's her job. A godly young woman makes her husband, makes her children her most basic priority. And the young woman says, well, but I don't like that. Then our response is, then you don't want to be sanctified. And if you don't want to be sanctified long enough, we would say you're never in Christ to begin with. So if a young woman says, I don't like that, then our response is, then get sanctified and start liking it. Because it's God's will. It's the only pathway to joy. There's no such thing as a rebellious, joyful Christian. 
They're to be self-controlled. This is the same word for the older men, to learn to be prudent and wise, to stop being silly as young women. They're to be pure. It means they're pursuing the life of holiness, and by inference, they're focusing their, their love and their affection on their husbands, their husbands alone. They are to be working at home, literally doing tasks in the house. That's what the Greek word means. Doing tasks in the house, serving your family by working in the home. And wow, has our culture jumped down our throats for that one, haven't they? But that's God's plan. They are to be kind. It simply means to be good. Be a good and godly woman. They are to be submissive to their own husbands, meaning that a Christian woman is happy and content to be under the authority of her husband, just like a Christian man is expected to be happy and content under the authority of an employer. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And then for the young women, that the word of God may not be reviled. What does this mean? That a woman who's pushing back against God's will and is rebelling against the Lord is giving evidence to the world that the gospel really changes nothing. And finally, Paul addresses younger men. And this is kind of my favorite, and I think you'll see why here. Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And you go, well, where's the rest of it? He says simply, be self-controlled. It means to be sensible, to exercise wisdom. What I love about this is that the singular command here implies that the major focus of a young man should be to gain wisdom, to learn, to grow. And as an added bonus, Paul tells Titus that he too needs to be sanctified as a shepherd. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, he tells Timothy, tells Titus rather, watch your mouth and watch what you teach. And what is our motivation to follow the commands of God for older men, older women, younger women, younger men? Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is God doing in your sanctification? What is He doing? Second half of verse 14, He is purifying for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You have a zeal to be like Christ. You have an eagerness to be like Christ. We've tried to prove the case, three pieces of evidence, the New Testament's view of sanctification, the duty of the shepherd in sanctification, and an expanded commentary on sanctification. What does this evidence prove? What's the conclusion? The conclusion is, is that a genuine believer in Christ is committed to sanctification to the glory of God, to growing in Christ's likeness. I want you to consider this. You were dead to yourself. You have no life in yourself. You have no rights. You have been bought and paid for by Christ 125 times in the New Testament. You were called a slave of Christ. In salvation, when Christ was crucified, so were you. In salvation, when Christ was raised from the dead, so were you. In salvation, when Christ was destined for heaven, so are you. You're united with Christ. This is why Paul says dozens of times we are in Christ. Now, what do we mean by being genuinely committed to sanctification? Here's what this means. And now I am to the main point of my message. What it means to be genuinely committed to sanctification is being willing to confront yourself on a regular basis. Being willing to confront yourself on a regular basis. I have two options right now. I could close in prayer or I could show you how to do this. I've given you three pieces of evidence that tells you I should take the second option. Turn to Ephesians 5. I want to give you an example of how to confront yourself on a regular basis. 
The last three chapters of Ephesians really serve as a comprehensive guide to a believer's sanctification. It's as comprehensive as you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. And if you will become enamored with Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, you'll find that Paul covers all the bases when it comes to Christ's likeness. And I'd like to use just the first few verses of Ephesians 5 as an example of true self-confrontation. Because self-confrontation goes far beyond, well, that was an interesting sermon. I should think about that sometime. Oh, look, there's Jack in the box. Are you hungry? It goes far beyond that. It also goes far beyond, well, I have to leave for work in eight minutes. I think I'll read Ephesians 5 real quick. Here's an example of real self-confrontation. And by the way, this can be an example of how to hold one another accountable if you're meeting in a mentoring relationship or a mutual accountability relationship. There's no possible way you can write all this down. So I'm going to just give you the gist and the idea, and I think you'll get it as we go. But I want you to listen very carefully because what I'm about to do can literally be life-changing for you. So get this imprinted in your mind, just how we do this. How to confront yourself. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, I want you to picture yourself seated at your desk or in a, in a comfortable chair or at your kitchen table with your Bible and with a notebook and with a pen. And you have just read Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And you write, question 1. In what ways generally do I need to pay more attention to imitating God? And then write them down and pray through each one every day for the next week. These are all the ways I need to be more mindful of imitating God. Question two, and again, I'm going to do a lot. I just want you to get the idea. Question two, for the ways I've identified in which I need to imitate God more effectively, what is a good reminder Bible verse for each of those ways? Write those down and recite and pray through each of these for a week. Question three, we're still in verse one. I am to imitate God because I'm a beloved child of God. In what ways does being a child of God motivate me to imitate God? Write down all the motivations being a child of God causes and pray to be motivated this way for the next week. Just from Ephesians 5 verse 1, you're beginning to mold your heart and to confront yourself. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, you're here with your Bible, a notebook, a pen. Question four from verse two. In what ways do I need to pay more attention to walking in love? Ready for this? Who are the people I am most unloving towards and how? Make a list of these people and how I am consistently unloving toward them. Pray through this list for the next week. Question five. Continue praying through the list of people I am most unloving toward. Decide how and when to repent to these people. Remember that repentance involves changing my mind about my sin, not just saying I'm sorry. Repentance involves a new direction and new ways of behaving from the heart. You write this down. Still in verse 2, question 6. The example given is that I am to walk in love, quote, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. With the people I listed in question 4, How can I love them in sacrificial ways, in ways that cost me and that even aren't easy? Write these down and pray through them for the next week and make a plan. Question seven. With the results of question six, make the plan to do something sacrificial for each of the people you need to love with sacrificial love. Carry out this plan in the next week as a demonstration of your love and proof of repentance. Question eight. Still verse two. Walking in love is to be like Christ whose sacrifice on the cross was a fragrant offering. List 10 ways that my love toward others ought to be fragrant rather than with a martyr's spirit or with conditions or an embittered heart. Pray through this list and ask for the Lord's help for the next week. We're in in week eight right now in two verses. Question nine, Christ's love at the cross was first and foremost a sacrifice to God. This is verse two. Write about how this is different than Christ's sacrifice just being about me. Pray about this new understanding that Christ died for the sake of obedience to God. What are the implications for me as I sacrificially love those around me? How can this be a sacrifice to God? How can this be for the Lord's sake? That alone will change your view of all trials in your whole life. 
Chapter 5, verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Question 10, In what ways do I struggle with sexual immorality and impurity, whether married or not? List my sin tendencies in this area, especially sins of the mind, and pray through them this week. Question 11, what things or people do I struggle with when it comes to covetousness? Do I get jealous or bitter that someone has something I do not have? What is the spiritual root of this covetousness? Pray to the Lord in repentance for this heart attitude for the next week. Question 12, in the areas in which I struggle with covetousness, find three to five Bible verses which speak of contentment and the sovereignty of God. Write these down, recite these verses prayerfully every day for the next week. We'll do one more. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Question 13, in what situations am I most likely to speak out of turn, to speak in ways that do not honor the Lord? Find three Bible verses about the proper use of the tongue. Write these down, recite them, meditate on them for the next week. Question 14, the replacement for foolish talk is to be thanksgiving. Listen to this. In my speech with others, do I express thankfulness to the Lord or do I complain and leave God out of my conversations? For the next week, determine to mention specific thankfulness to God with every person I speak to. Write down who you spoke to and how you mentioned thankfulness to God instead of foolish talk. I dare say you'll start talking to fewer people and be more thankful. Do you see now what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Two weeks ago, I gave a challenge to you to pick one sin and to attack it. Many of you responded to that challenge. My prayer is that all of you would take heed to yourselves and decide to invest in your own sanctification. I just showed you how to do it. Why should you do this? I've already given you the evidence that a genuine believer in Christ is committed to sanctification. Why? To the glory of God. That is why we live our Christian lives. The true believer is committed to aggressively pursuing his or her own sanctification And what a joy, what a delight. Because let me tell you what the byproduct is. The byproduct is that you are strong in the Lord. And the byproduct is that you're joyful. And the byproduct is is that every tear that you shed, you know gets saved up in heaven and you're okay with it. The byproduct is strength. The byproduct is effectiveness. The byproduct is, is a wholesomeness about your life. The byproduct is that sin is decreasing. The byproduct is that you love the Lord more and you love God's people more. The byproducts are endless. Instead of being the person that 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about, that we're to do, we're to help the weak, don't be the one that just kind of crawls across the finish line. What did Paul say? He said, I have fought the good fight. I have run the what? The race. He didn't say I've crawled the race. He didn't say, I've been dragged across the finish line by my friends and family. He says, I've run the race. I would remind us again of Paul's own example. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if everyone in the church is doing that, that's a church that God is going to bless and use to spread the gospel literally around the world. Amen? Amen. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God, the songs of our faith, all these glorious tools and weapons that you have given to us. We rejoice in the fact that at our own deaths or at the return of Christ, whichever comes first, we will be made like Christ. But the call to Christ-likeness now is clear. 
the evidence is overwhelming and the resulting joy is absolutely delightful. I pray for these precious, dear, tender saints here. Every one of them has a besetting sin. Every one of them has that thing in the darkness of their own hearts that they know needs to be confronted, needs to be dealt with, needs to be dragged out of the darkness into the light of the scriptures. Give them the courage to do that. Give them the courage to confront themselves, to let the word of God do that cleansing work, to shine the brilliant light of truth on the dark places so that what is in our heart is more righteous and therefore what we say with our mouth, what we look at with our eyes, what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet is then conformed to the image of the Son of God. We pray to be a church that is sanctified, that would receive a commendation from the head of the church to be told, well done, good and faithful church. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.